you think about something like Mother's Day, it's, it's, it's complex in the world we live in. It is, but it isn't. Blended families, two or three stepmoms, single moms, it, it, it really does add up. God has a lot to keep up with. And I'm glad he is on the throne. Amen. So we wish all of you a blessed Mother's Day. And uh, to you, Mom, happy Mother's Day. Um, I want to say happy Mother's Day to Polly, um, Thomas's mother, who is to me um, an ongoing distant source of encouragement. And I appreciate that deeply. I really do. I really do. Today, as we look at firming up our foundation in our faith, I would be remiss not to tackle this topic uh, because it is incredibly important in God's economy. And I think we need to, it never hurts us to get a refresher on God's intent for the church. What is the role of the church in the life of a believer? It's the biblical role of the church. And this, this message is entitled, entitled Communally. So if you have a ferment up your uh, faith in action sheet or don't have one, raise your hand. We'll come around and give you one. Here, thank you, Tom. Christy, raise your hand if you don't have one. There we go. I want to talk to you about the importance of the church in God's eyes and um, how we are to um, maximize maximize the purpose of the church in our lives. And the first thing I would say to you that the church is the beautiful, and I mean beautiful, bride of Christ. The church is the beautiful bride of Christ, and he has chosen you, he's chosen us, to, to be his own. Now, God is a huge, God is multifaceted, multi-layered, and for our puny little finite minds to totally understand who he is, sometimes he gives us something that we are more familiar with to place him in that so that we understand who he is and what he wants to do. And for the Jewish people, he inserted himself and chose them so that through their, those people and their language and their customs and their interaction with one another and the narrative of their deliverance and to the promised land, he's exposing himself to us and showing us who he is through the Jewish people. And this happens in many ways. Specifically, in many ways, but specifically, he does that through the institution of marriage. The Jewish marriage. If you understand the Jewish marriage, you have a better uh, opportunity to understand the depth and the multifaceted nature of God. Okay, so in that context, I want to talk to you about the church as the bride of Christ for a couple of minutes. Okay, guys, uh, I want you to think like a bride. I'm, I'm hoping that's a little difficult, but I want you to think like a bride. I, I think I want you to think like like someone that that God has chosen for Himself. Uh, all right, let me give you a masculine way of getting into this role here. Let's say you're standing on the playground and they're picking sides for a basketball, pick up basketball game, and you're standing there. I always got picked first for some reason. I don't know why. 
But I got to worrying as I got picked first about who was third on the list and fourth. And then I noticed we only needed to pick one more guy and there was like three guys standing there and I knew two of them weren't gonna get picked. Remember that feeling? Well, God picked you to be on his team. God chose all of us, actually. Now the question is, did we choose him back? Uh, Think about a girl for a moment. Think about a middle school girl trying to form her identity. I've never had to think this way, except for the Sadie Hawkins dance. Remember that? The Sadie Hawkins dance is when the girls would have the guys out. Guys would put their best shirt on that week, you know, and maybe even bathe. But think about what it's like to be a girl waiting for someone, a boy, to ask her to the prom or ask her to a dance. I've never had to really get in touch with that, but think about it for a moment, feel it. Like you go to school all day long, a week or two before the prom, and then another day's gone by, no one's asked you, another day's, no one's asked you, another day, no one's asked you. All of a sudden, you're only like three or four days away from the prom and nobody's asked you yet. You get to feeling like it ain't gonna happen, right? Who wouldn't want me to ask them to the prom with my, that's right, peach-colored tuxedo in 10th grade? But not everyone got picked, not everyone got chosen. Well, you're the bride of Christ, my friend. You got picked. You're on the team, and you're going to the prom. That's the way I look at it. The bridegroom's choice. John 15 to 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Christ has chosen you. Deal with it. I had this driver in a foreign trip I was on one time. He was my driver. And he was, uh, used to be in the mafia. He was a rough dude. God gave me such a burden for that guy. He is new to Christ. And all I could do was pray over this guy's feet. I just prayed the gospel would take this guy wherever God wanted to take him and his testimony would lead tens of thousands of people to Christ. And that's coming to pass, actually. God chose that guy too. So once you choose a bride in Jewish institution of marriage, what happens is you have to negotiate a bride price. So you go to the father of the, of the bride, if it's not an arranged marriage, and you negotiate a contract, okay, Uh, The the bride price is kind of um, a reflection of the family's honor and integrity and resources. Okay, so if a a bridegroom is going to pay a bride price for a bride and his family is, is affluent, it ought to be an honorable price. It ought to be reflected of the honor they have in the community. It ought to be a good price to get the family started. Mark 14, 24 and 25, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. 
once you paid your bride price, you drank on it. You drank a sip of wine, the first of two cups you would take. It would signify that the, the bride price in the contract has been finalized, has been agreed upon by both parties, that the price is in keeping with the family who's marrying, marrying the bride, and they would seal it with a glass of wine, first of two. It had to be a good price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Do you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. God chose you. God drank to that covenant with you. And God paid an ultimate price, the blood of his son. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The Jews who understood that the blood of Christ was poured out and purchased them as the bride of Christ understood every bit of that. It meant something to them, near and dear. Once the contract was negotiated, once it was signed, once the first of two cups was drank, and once they understood the price was right, then the, the groom would leave. He'd go back to his father's property. He would add on or remodel a part of his father's house or build a place for he and his wife to live next to his father or in the vicinity of the father. John 14, two and three, my father's house have many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you? I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. And you also may be where I am. They understood that. The, 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 the bride understood that the, the man she's going to marry, she's now betrothed to. She's in a contract with. This thing is already settled. She has been purchased. And he's going to leave now and prepare a place for her. She's going to be patient and wait. And she would wait. And she would wait. And as the time drew near when they sensed his return, she would cleanse herself in what they called a mikvah, a ritual bath. The very kinds of waters that were used in Cana before the actual wedding celebration. She would cleanse herself in anticipation of the arrival of her groom had who had just built and prepared a place for them to live. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. But we do know that those birth pains are coming closer and closer, and we as the bride of Christ can anticipate the return of Christ in an imminent way more and more based on what we see happening prophetically in the world. And our role is the bride of Christ to keep ourselves chaste, to keep ourselves holy, to keep pursuing him and to keep waiting upon the Lord. And they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strengths. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. That's the whole institution of the Jewish marriage. And then he's going to return, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a shut of an archangel, Archangel in the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. The coming of Jesus Christ. There's then a ceremony in a hoopah for the Jewish wedding. And they will consummate that marriage 
in the place prepared for the bride by the groom. John 3 and 29 and 30. The bridegroom belongs, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The attendant to the uh, honeymoon, the seven days in the bridal chamber, well, that's something to look forward to after all this, huh? The friend or the best man, in this case, the Holy Spirit, announces the consummation of the marriage, celebrates, and then there's a wedding supper. We know it to be the wedding supper of the Lamb. I say all that to say there's a second cup. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's the second cup. I say all that to say, we get down on the church, we ridicule the church, we have confusion about the church, we have problems with the church, and, and some of them are warranted. Some of them are warranted. But the church is the bride. If I was engaged to my wife, I would not appreciate you walking up to me and telling me that my fiance is very unattractive. But yet we do that every day when we talk ill of the bride of Christ. The church in God's economy is the vessel, the conduit of which he's gonna bless the world and make himself known. The church to God is the important love relationship that he has. And he's using the church like he used the Jewish people to make himself known in the world today by how we interact with one another. And we have challenges in that area. We have people who don't preach the truth. We have people who don't preach the truth and, tr and preach lies. We have scandals and we have challenges and we have uh, moral failures and we have abused children. We have things that don't reflect well on the bride of Christ. But yet I say to you this morning, you are the bride of Christ. You're the bride of Christ. And in this hill, on this city I set upon the hill right here, on this hill when you get out of this parking lot and we gather here together, or when we're gathered or when we're not gathered, we're still the bride of Christ and there's a role for you to play in this world. And people will know who Christ is through the bride that he is preparing a place for. Now in the Bible, it says there on your sheet there, it says the bride of Christ was first known to be the people of the way. I think that's cool. Uh, some of you may not believe this, but the first church was not the first Baptist church of Jerusalem. Or the second, it wasn't the second Episcopalian church, it wasn't anything, it was the way. The people of the way. They had a way about them. They were going somewhere. They were picking up momentum. They were being taken somewhere. There was something visually identifiable, distinctly different about these people of the way. They, they had gathered momentum. God had put favor on them. They had grown in their number daily. They have distinct practices. They have distinct sacraments. They have distinct uh, behavior. They, they had a, a personality. They gathered, they trusted, they prayed, they shared, they ate, they loved. 
They made known, there were signs, there was wonders. When, when the way came about, it distinguished, she distinguished herself from everything else. There's no way in that day and time that she, the way, could be mistaken for some other way. There was no other way. This was the way. And the way that they went about things, people took note of. And they either rejected the way or they got on board with the way or they tried to kill the people of the way. But whatever it was, the way was the way. How many of you have seen Jesus' revolution? It was, that was the way. I mean, if that wasn't distinctive. You can rent that on television now, by the way. I watched it the other night. Man, that was distinctly different. How many of you were hippies and, and have the guts to raise your hand right now? That was awesome, man. They were people of the way. Acts 19 to 23, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. The people of the way were called to be people of the word. Colossians 3 and 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. The people of the way became the people of the word. As the gospels were written and the oral tradition was replaced even by written and then eventually, much later, the printing press, they were people of the word. The word wasn't canonized until as late as 397 AD in Carthage, North Africa. I mean, that's almost 400 years of written, printed material on scrolls that hadn't been formally made into the New Testament yet, but had been preached, had been shared, had been prayed, had been Bible studies. They, they had Bible studies on Tuesday at the zookeeper. They had, they had uh, Bible studies on Thursday at the zookeeper. They had women's Bible studies in the family room on Tuesday. They had retreats with the thing. And, and all of the scrolls that they read and they used, there were certain scrolls they realized were different than others. And that's what became your New Testament. There were people of the way who became people of the word. And the people of the word were called to a deep level of oneness. Their greatest strength was their love for each other. But even, I think, maybe even greater than that was their oneness. The church met needs in people's lives on many levels. Practical, social, intellectual, spiritual, and the church was the, the, the meeting place for identity forming and growing and dealing with life. This model has actually been replaced. In our community, I don't know if you ever thought about this, in our community, it's different. And I'm not saying I'm down on these things at all. I'm just saying that there are certain things in our community who have taken place of the church and meets the needs of people that the church was intended to meet. Doesn't make them wrong, and what am I talking about? I'm talking about country clubs. The whole philosophy of a country club on this plateau is to be an all-inclusive place whereby your practical needs are met, your social needs are met, your recreational needs are met, your physiological needs are met, and praise God, sometimes your spiritual needs are met because Bible studies are of a paramount importance in the context of country clubs. So the country club today, here on this plateau anyway, in many ways meets the needs of people much like the early church met the needs of people. 
It was the place to live and gather and do life together and even break bread and even share teaching. I don't know about the dues part. So the people of the word were called to a deep level of oneness. Uh, oneness and unity are of premium importance in the church. You don't have to have it in a homeowner's association. In fact, you really do. If you've ever been a president of a homeowner's association group and you want to have an altar call after this for healing, we will do it. <laughs> if you've ever been the president of a country club and you need healing, we're here for you. But unity in the church is of premium importance. If you don't have unity, you don't have anointing. If you don't have anointing, you might as well not be a church. If you don't have unity, you don't have anointing. How good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil of the spirit coming down over the head, under the beard, under the body. Trying to tell us, if you want to have an anointed ministry, you have to have unity. If you, don't have, if you have divisiveness, you're not going to have unity. Now, this principle, Jesus said, a house divided cannot stand. This principle is at work in our nation. Are we the United States of America? Is that more accurate? Or are we the divided States of America? Is that more accurate? I don't know. But the very fact I'm raising the question tells you we're probably headed in the wrong direction. Unity is of utmost importance. How many times, how many of you have been in a church that split? Not pretty, I don't guess. I've never have, but I'm saying that's probably not too fun. That is the death of the anointing. Ephesians 4 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So the people of the Word were called to a deep level of oneness, and the people of oneness were people through whom the bridegroom would display wonders. And the early church did see wonders. And we've talked about this, signs and wonders confirming the word. People healed. Just a few weeks ago, I mean, we don't talk about this that often. I don't know if that's right or wrong. I don't think it's wrong. Just three of us prayed for a woman over here who had 30 uh, years of intense back pain. Called the church not long after we prayed for her. And she's dancing around saying she didn't have any pain. So what's the lesson there? The church is the place where the way and the word and the oneness and the wonders come together. It doesn't necessarily happen out there uh, at the rec center for your social club or whatever. I wish it did. And the people of wonders were called to win the lost. That's the role of the church. It has a mission. In fact, it has a commission. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. I'm actually doing that now. I'm taking you through 12 to 14 weeks of firming up a foundation so that we can move on to freedom in Christ. Why? 
Because the pastor of the church of the United States of America no longer get people in a small group to be discipled. They have to do it on a Sunday morning. You have nowhere to run. And we have follow-up material to help you to firm up your faith. People of the way became people of the word and people of oneness and people of wonders to win the lost. We're gonna have a state of the church service coming up in June. I think you're gonna find that quite interesting. We're gonna find out where we are as a church and where we're going. We have some very important announcements to make that day by too. You don't wanna miss that day. I'm not gonna tell you because you'll just come to every Sunday that way. Acts 2, 42 to 47, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Listen, if you're visiting, listen to me, please. If you're, if, you're, if you're being fed spiritually on the internet by all different kinds of teaching, listen to me, please. Do not sit under anyone's teaching that is not in line with the word of God. by the time people come here that have been in some goofy, and I mean goofy, church that has their own way of doing things, not the way, their way, and it's not in line with the scripture, it's near to impossible to get people out of that toxic mindset. There's a lack of trust, a lack of rest, and it's very difficult you have to be perfect in every way. The first mistake you make, they're gone. Even if it's not a mistake, they're gone because they won't be duped again. By the way, discernment is important. This ministry will never send out an email from Pastor Gary Hewins asking you to buy a bunch of gift cards for people who are sick. And I'm not, I'm not making fun of those who went out and bought gift cards. I'm saying we've got to be careful, discerning. How many times you come here on a Sunday, you hear me use this word discerning, discerning, discerning. Because there's so many schemes and deception and subtleties out there that seek to destroy. And you, who are the most trusting people? The people who are most trustworthy. And that's the church. The people who mean well and want the best for others are the first to get duped. Discernment is important. Pray for it. Pray for discernment. If you have a question, ask before you buy. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They went to the source. They stayed with the source and to the fellowship, the koinonia. Some of you came up in churches where fellowship was synonymous with cholesterol. You notice you had a lot of fellowship in certain denominations when you were there, but you also weighed 40 pounds more than you do right now. Fellowship is not always fried chicken. You, you very, you're very slim build. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised you're laughing. Fellowship is not just eating. Fellowship is the sharing, the mutual give and take and the sharing of the things of the Spirit. 
that help a community to grow, that help a, an individual to grow, that help a man love his wife, to help a, a woman love her husband. The fellowship, the koinonia of God is meant to be experienced in the context of the bride meeting together and growing in the word. Why did I show this Mother's Day video like this? I mean, there's like 25 different scenarios being said here. Why? Because motherhood has to be more. Nowadays, listen, motherhood has to be more than simply having two or three babies and raising them. Motherhood has to happen in the church. And for the most part, it's not. It was intended in the bride of Christ for older women, Titus 2, to teach younger women how to love their husbands. Not happening. I mean, it happens in Bible studies and it happens over time through relationships, but some of you should be spiritual mamas. I'm I'm telling you this on Mother's Day. You should be a spiritual mama for a spiritual girl in the church. It's important. Because it refines you and it refines her. Paul's need t- Timothy's. If, you, if you're not investing in some younger man, you're going to church, you're not being the church. See, in the community of God, communally speaking, God wanted iron to sharpen iron in this context. And when other things meet the needs of people that are meant to be met here, the results are different. If ever a church had an opportunity, such a high level of potential from older guys who aren't working anymore or working is making three phone calls a week to mentor younger men, it's this one. Some of you have been in the Lord and in community of faith for decades. And if you're not giving back, you're gonna dry up. You're meant to dry up. You're meant to be basically neutral. You've got to invest in other people. You've got to find somebody. You've got to have those growth conversations. You've got to challenge younger men. I can't be the only guy in the church challenging people. Calling people on their Uh, Well, first of all, encouraging people when they're really doing great and holding people accountable when they're not. My gosh, I make a living doing that. We have to have those relationships in the body of Christ. See, what happens is you define church as to what it was you experienced before you come to this one. And then whatever baggage or things that weren't working there, you want to duplicate here, or it never even occurs to you that you should be doing something different other than you are. Until you run into somebody like me who doesn't really care one way or another, just tells you the way it is. I'm not in any popularity contest, if you haven't noticed. You guys need to be investing in younger men. Younger, and it's not all age. Some of you guys here that are uh, in your 60s and 70s and church is a fairly new thing to you or you're, you're here because your spouse wanted you to be here and it's Mother's Day, somebody needs to invest in you because you ain't where you need to be. Frankly, you don't know this, but you're not where you want to be. And by the way, you don't know where you could be. 
That's the power of the community of God. When the right guy comes along, who used to be exactly where you are and knows exactly what to say to you and encourage you, you'll start to grow. You'll notice that God will get bigger and your challenges will get smaller. God will get bigger and your problems will get less. Your, your God will be more often in the, in the frequency of anxiety will lessen. It's all growth and it's all supposed to happen in the context of the chosen people of God, the church, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. This is, this is it, where it gives it away right here. This is where you tell. If there's koinonia, there's the sharing of coin. I've met two kinds of people to come to church. There's the guy who's trying to build his business and he comes to get business and make some coin. I guess there's nothing wrong with that. Not at the expense of koinonia though. What is the koinonia? The koinonia is the sharing of God one with the other. And if you have the koinonia, you always have the coin. Ministry, the money always follows ministry. If, you're, if you have a church that's begging for money, there's something wrong. The ministry isn't doing what it's supposed to do because if the ministry was, the money would be there. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In the context of Christ's community of faith, we are to discover some things. And these are on your sheet there. In the context of Christ's community of faith, we are to discover sanctification. Outside the church, I think typically what happens is we get on self-improvement programs or we're gonna go through this season of improvement or this or that, and we can, we can make improvements in our life, we can make changes. They're really supposed to be made in the context of community, but nonetheless, we can and we do, and we can be successful with that. But the process of sanctification, of growing in the knowledge of God and growing in holiness and growing in a life that is prosperous, influential, um, meaningful, fulfilling, satisfying, that life that you find in the community of God, that particular life, that sanctified life, is a process of growth, and you've got to be involved in a church that understands we're all a work in progress, period. Sanctification. The second thing we're supposed to discover is selflessness versus selfishness. You hang around the right church long enough, and you're going to be less self-sufficient, less selfish, and more selfless. It's not gonna diminish you or hurt you or lower your worth, but you're gonna find worth in selflessness. You can understand a word that is rarely understood in the United States of America today, sacrifice. I know sacrifice on the battlefield, but beyond that, I don't see a lot of sacrifice. We see episodic sacrifice where someone tries to stop a, an active shooter or, or works of heroism but sacrifice is beyond just putting our life on the line, as noble as that is. Sacrifice is 
Doing what you don't want to do when you want to do something else. Doing something when you want to do anything. Showing up for something because it's meaningful to someone else. Doing something not only for your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Putting yourself last sometimes. Being humble. Stand the back of the line. Don't be up front. Don't look for attention. Sacrifice. Unity, but not uniformity. We have a challenge here on this mountain. Uniformity. Uniformity is a challenge we have. I said a couple weeks ago, we need our young people off the mountains cross-cultural experiences. By the way, Kulawi is not the cross-cultural experience I'm actually looking for here. We are a bunch of white people in a church with half a head of hair going through the same season of life among the same people doing the same things. And we need some lost people. We need some people who desperately, we need desperation. There's plenty out there. We need desperation to do something for someone else. If you want to know the truth. We need to, I need desperation beyond my own personal preferences and needs to do something for someone else that makes me second, not first. We need to help. We need to, to build, bring along. We have so much uniformity that we mistake it for unity. Unity is, is a piece of cake in some contexts, but it's difficult in others. We need some people on the mission field. I'm trying to put short-term mission trips together for, to go out into the world and see the diversity of all the different kinds of people that live in the earth, all created by God and purchased by God. Well, we're going to discover faith and we're going to discover fatherhood and motherhood. I just got done talking about that. We need spiritual fathers and we need spiritual mothers. There has never been a time in my life anyway where I have noticed that this particular culture, this country, needs a father like nobody's business. We need a father. We are a country that's emasculating men on a daily basis, making fools of them at their own expense and calling it humor and teaching entire generations not to recognize the authority of a male or a female for that matter. It is costing us greatly. We need patriarchal thinkers. We need patriarchal people in the pews who look around and say, I could probably spiritually father that guy a little bit. I could, I could help him some, right? We don't have a father figure. My own personal opinion, we haven't had a father figure since Ronald Reagan. And we need a father figure in this country. We have too many fatherless cultures, fatherless cities, fatherless families, fatherless children. And God is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. Be a father in the church. Be a big brother. Go find somebody. Do something. This is the church of Jesus Christ. This is the bride. This is what we were chosen for. We need to bolster our trust in one another. There's nothing worse than someone sharing something with you in confidence in the church and somebody going blabbing it to everybody. It's the greatest violation of trust 
The church is supposed to be a place of confidence, confidentiality. That's God's economy. He wants it. Grace, generosity. It's in the church that you really should learn generosity. And the next two are very important. Hugely important. The next is authority, and the one after that is authority in Christ. Some of you came through the 60s, and what was that? That was an anti-establishment, anti-authority thing going on that cost us dearly in the 70s and into the 80s. We have the, the, the dissolution, the, the dilution of authority. Nobody has credibility, it seems like. The pastor is supposed to be the spiritual authority in the church, local church. There's supposed to be authority figures in our life that we answer to. We, we can't get generations of people to keep their job because they won't listen to the person they work for. We have an authority problem. It was God's desire to define authority and practice authority in the church. Not abuse it, practice it. You have no authority if you don't submit to authority. The next one's authority in Christ. The, in the church, the church needs the place, is a place where believers discover that they themselves have an authority given and bestowed upon them by Christ. To lay hands on the sick, to minister to people, to counsel them, to do what God has called them to do. Mark 1 and 22, when he spoke, he spoke as one who had authority, unlike the teachers of the law. The people were blown away by the authority with which Jesus spoke. Our mothers today on Mother's Day are probably revered less in this culture from an authority standpoint in their own home where children honor their parents in the Ten Commandments probably less now than in recent decades. Authority. We have to learn that. And it was God's design to teach that in the church. Mystery. We have to experience God in the context of the church as mysterious and supernatural, not fight it. If you have a church that does not have a supernatural God, you have a bunch of wussies. You have someone who's looking at the Bible and in no way, shape, or form is in agreement with the majority of what's said about God. If we're just expecting him to be a man upstairs who hears us and loves us, great. But he should be doing something. He should be actively involved in our life. We should be revering him, fearing him, submitting to his authority, having authority. We should see people's lives change. We should see back, backs healed. We should see holes and throats healed. We should see things happening. It should, all, it should be beyond ourselves. That meal that we take, that Holy Communion, we break bread together, that has to be mysterious. It has to be supernatural. Otherwise, we got nothing. We got nothing. A church without a supernatural God is a church that never really rose from the dead. What is that, a fable? And if that's the case, then we're nothing. We're false prophets. Without the resurrection, we're false prophets, false teachers, we're pagans, we're lost as a ball in high weeds. Without the resurrection... You've got to keep the supernatural aspects of God in the church. And the last is conflict resolution. Well, not quite last. 
as our worshipers come up to close the service, let's, let's talk about these two things, conflict, resolution. You hear me talk about cancel culture. How many of you are familiar with that term, cancel culture? Okay. On any given day, of any day of the year, any church, including this one, can be canceled by the people who attend it. Cancel, disappear, say nothing to anybody, gone, we canceled you, you're gone. Where did that start? I'll tell you where it started, in my own humble opinion, with the TV remote. I remember when I was a kid, what, would, what did you do as a kid when you were in the living room with your parents, your dad on a Saturday afternoon? You ran back and forth from the sofa to the TV to change the channel, right? And you had all three of them. You had the tinfoil and the rabbit ears, and you had three stations, ABC, NBC, and CBS, right? Well, my dad, after a while, got, kind of felt sorry for me. I was getting winded. He kept changing the channel. Then we got a remote. Oh, a remote. Cancel you. You're gone. I'm here. I'm here for one second. Oh, commercial. I'm out of here. I saw this before. Oh, I don't like this part. I'll come back in a few minutes. You got three shows going on at the same time. One's being recorded. You got two back and forth on the thing. Cancel this. Bring that. Come back. We're like schizophrenic TV. Ah! We don't like something within two or three seconds, we'll get rid of it, right? By the way, do you really need a 1,000 or 2,000 stations? There it is. I'll cancel this relationship, I'll cancel this, it's done. And we walk through life, unbeknownst to us, with a remote in our hand. We sit down and have coffee and we turn the volume down on the person who's talking to us. Shh. We live with a remote. We've depersonalized one another. And Jesus says, I, I chose you for marriage. I chose you just the way you are. And I want you to resolve your conflicts in the context of the church. In fact, I'm gonna have a government in the church that's gonna help you if you can't resolve your own conflicts. You can go to them with your problems. But we're gonna be the kind of people that faces each other, looks each other in the eye without a remote in our hand, listens to one another and solves a conflict. Usually when one of the two parties has no idea there was a conflict to begin with, that's all supposed to happen in the context of the church. We don't do it though. We live in a culture that never really got that, so we just flip you off. Next channel, you're gone, done. It almost, it almost feels like the one with the remote is the one with the divine power. Out. That's happening in our businesses our jobs. You don't even quit a job anymore and give anybody a notice. You just don't show up that day. Whatever happened to so-and-so? He's not here. He quit. How do you know he quit? I don't know. He knows a guy who knows a guy who told me he quit. What about the two-week notice? He doesn't even know what that is. He just has a remote in his hand and says, I don't work here anymore. Done. Gone. Next. We have no mutual respect for one another whatsoever. We are called to love our Lord, love our neighbor, and love one another. 
And the thing that we probably need to look forward to more than anything else in life is something that's awkward and we don't want to do. If something is awkward and you don't want to do it, it's probably the number one thing you need to do. Do it first and everything else will be simple. And you'll realize it was 50% less anxiety causing than what you thought. Do it. Do it. Have the conversation. Make the call. Put the remote down. Don't cancel each other. Love for our Lord, love for our neighbor, and love for one another. I end with this, John 13 and 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Luba and Marie from Ukraine that now attend here and um, Anastasia. Their village, their city was bombed last night in Ukraine. And doesn't appear to be any direct injuries they're aware of. But we have got to remind ourselves from time to time that as the church of Jesus Christ, where we are on this mountain and the life that we have on this mountain is different than people elsewhere in the world. And it's incumbent upon us in our state of incredible prosperity and blessing to be mindful of those who are without, to pray, and to share, and to give, and to be there for them. Amen? Amen. All of this is supposed to happen in the container we call the Church of Jesus Christ. And those needs get met elsewhere, I understand that. Don't compromise God's intent. Men, find a spiritual son. Women, find a spiritual daughter. She doesn't have to be here. She needs to be somewhere. Invest. Don't spend time. Invest time with one another. Let's help each other. Let's do what we need for one another and be the church. Don't attend a church. Be the church. Don't sit in a sanctuary. Take sanctuary. When you come in here, you ought to leave here equipped to meet someone else's needs that week. Go do it. Go do it. You have within you Jesus the Christ and the Holy Spirit. No weapon formed against you can prosper. This is the priesthood of all believers. You're on notice. The church of Jesus Christ and God chose you to go make a difference and do good works in people's life. Let's keep it up. Let's keep it up. You're doing a great job. Let's keep it up. Let's keep it up. Let's keep it up. Amen. Amen. Amen.